0: you're listening to the curiosity collective podcast i'm Arpita, and i'm deepika
1: i'm so glad we're finally doing this Uh, We've been speaking of this for a while now and I remember how especially when I was researching and writing for the episode on the urban migrant worker crisis, which by the way continues to unfold even today, uh, there were these images of people walking on highways and streets in the blazing Indian summer and alongside them were children of all shapes and sizes from toddlers to teenagers. And I remember this thought just getting stuck in my head that uh, these children were in those photos, but there was little else being said or written about them.
0: Yeah, right. And um, I actually remember this image of a a very tired little boy of maybe five or six, and he was exhausted and sleeping on a suitcase that was being dragged along by his mother. And, And I remember it went viral. And at that time, there was some concern about the state of children. But actually, that hasn't seemed to translate into enough conversation or action in terms of what this pandemic has meant and is, and what it's doing to children.
1: And I think for us, it just kind of didn't sit right as both of us have worked with children and they form such a huge part of the reason and motivation we have of doing what we do. And um, both of us felt the lack of their presence in the ongoing conversation deeply.
0: Yeah, definitely over the past few months, we've been looking at how the COVID-19 pandemic has made visible these really deep inequalities of gender, caste, and class. Um, and they're fissures that have always existed, but now they're plain to see. But what's strange is that we don't easily see how age is also a very important access of determining experience. Um, and today, even though, you know, in the short period and with the limitations of lockdowns, we couldn't organize a conversation directly with children, I was able to chat with someone who works closely with them. Um, and they're all the more vulnerable during crisis like this, because it's not just their age, but also because of disability and poverty. So I spoke with Radhika al ghazi who's the founder of Delhi-based NGO Astha, which works with children with disabilities and their families, just to try and make sense of this current reality.
2: I'm Radhika al and uh, I'm the founder and managing trustee of an organization called Astha, that has been working with children and people with disabilities and their families in Delhi. And in the surrounding areas uh, for the last 27 years now. Our work is largely in the urban slum areas. We work in communities. We are a community based organization. We work with children and people with disabilities and their families in the communities. Apart from that, we also do a lot of policy work. And we look at how laws and policies include children and people with disabilities. And we advocate for that. And that work happens across all states with many different organizations and alliances that we work with.
0: You know, the interesting thing I often realize is that not a lot of people necessarily understand the width and range of the word disability. And just how many people fall within these various categories it encompasses.
1: Yeah, and it's also odd how you can go through your entire school life and hardly ever meet another child who lives with disability. And the same is true for most of our workplaces. So in many ways, a lot of us quote-unquote able people can go through life being pretty distant from and unfamiliar with the conversations around disability.
0: You know, while that's true, it's not because the number of people living with disabilities is small. I mean, rather, it's because it's not always visible. And even when it is, there is so much segregation that leads to more invisibilization. I mean, if you look at the census of India 2011, um, out of a population of 121 crores, about 2.68 crore persons are disabled. And that's 2.21% of the total population. And then if we're talking about children specifically... An estimated 7.8 million children under 19 live with disabilities, which is 1.7% of the total child population. But what I found actually powerful to note is that as per a 2019 UNESCO report, this figure is actually much lower than international estimates. And, you know, it leads to questions about disability measures that are being used in the Indian census.
1: And I was also reading that uh, since disability is self-reported, it's well-acknowledged that often official figures are low because it continues to be stigmatized in the larger community, and families often don't want to admit or disclose that a child has a disability. Uh, In many ways, I think we're still sort of evolving the idea uh, of disability, and I think in 2016, there was quite a massive change in how Indian legislation understands it.
0: Yeah, I remember in 2016 the disability legislation changed to recognise 21 disabilities, where it was previously just seven. Um, and Radhika, explained this in detail.
2: The children with disabilities um, are children who have a, some kind of an impairment, uh, and that impairment could be, uh, you know, difficulty in seeing, in walking, in moving, and hearing and many other things in thinking, understanding. And uh, in our country, we have a law, and we have recognized uh, 21 impairment groups uh, to be officially what we would call disability in our country. These would include kids with uh, blood disorders like hemophilia, paracemia. They would include children with speech impairments, They would include children with vision impairment, hearing impairment, uh, movement difficulties, and many others. So, there's intellectual disabilities, there can be other mental disabilities. So, if the mental disabilities include a whole range of conditions or different kinds and ways of being, for example, you may have autism, you may have intellectual disabilities, we may have mental illness, uh, psychosocial disabilities. So all these come under that rubric and uh, yes, it could be both, but again, I'd like to say it's not just the condition. What tends to happen is we think of that child and with disability in a very medical lens that, you know, it is only the, the difficulty in seeing, but it is really a question of what around, what is the context and how different factors interact with this difficulty in seeing or difficulty in walking or moving that affect the participation of this child. And that is what a child or a person with disability, that is what disability is all about.
1: You know, when she said this bit about how there's a need to think beyond the immediate uh, medical condition, and recognize how factors which uh, disabled kids can equally and often lie in their environment, I was at once reminded of our conversation with the good people at call, which uh, functions on the psychosocial approach and speaks to how intimately we are connected with the world around us and how our lived experience is a complex outcome of our biological heritage and our social locations of, you know, caste, class, gender, age, etc.,
0: Yeah, and I think understanding that is very important because we don't exist in a vacuum. And it's also how Article 1 of the Convention of the Rights of Persons with with Disabilities, which is the UNCRPD, describes children with disabilities. And it says, "...children who have long-term physical, mental, intellectual, or sensory impairments, which, in interaction with various barriers, may hinder their full and effective participation in society on an equal basis with others." And for me, a key part of this definition is, you know, where it says in interaction with various barriers. And Radhika, explain what these are and how they're often economic, social and political facets to it.
2: So really it is, you know, when uh, there is a child who has some kind of an impairment and right from the beginning, if she doesn't get, for example, services that are required to enable her to grow properly or to flourish, nutrition services or other kinds, for example, she may require some therapy, she may require something else or medical support that she doesn't get. Or, for example, if there is a, for example, we have an early childhood system in our country, the ICDS, the Young and system. If she doesn't, if she's excluded from that system, so sitting with all the other children, playing, talking, discussing, getting nutrition, and then the school system, uh, which uh, also if it does not easily take her in and or does not know how to teach her, then it's not the impairment that is talking to us. It is really our inability to to understand what this child's specific needs and requirements are and to fulfill that within our systems. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm talking about, the contexts and the kinds of the institutions that we build. Uh, They are not often in a way, built in a way or designed in a way that they accept diversity Mm. and all kinds of diversity, including this child. Above all, I think we have to understand she is a child and she needs all the things that a child needs. So the care, the love, playing with other kids, you know, just goofing off, just doing all the things that other children do as well as uh, a vast kind of array of experiences. Because that is one thing I'd like to say that very often kids with disabilities miss out on. Because they're isolated often and shut up at in homes. And so that whole range of experience that enables a child to learn, to learn the rules of a society, of a community, those often get missed out.
0: So things like access to nutrition, medical services, assistive devices, physiotherapy, learning, these are rights a child is entitled to. They're essential for the child's growth and development. And it's not just me saying this, I mean, it's embedded within the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. But very often, because of how disability is viewed socially, children are hidden away or there's a tendency to segregate and separate from other children. And then the bias compounds how effectively children can participate with their peers or, you know, be part of public spaces and and just be seen.
1: And, you know, I think it's important here to point out how disability rights activists see this more as a question of building the world for inclusion and diversity instead of laying down the framework that the disabled are somehow broken and apart. And Eli Clare, a writer and disability rights activist, puts this very eloquently when in one of his essays, he says this, Uh, this is a bit of a longish quote, but I think stay with me. It's really, I I feel like it's really beautifully put. Uh, He says, uh, disability activists have for decades said loudly and clearly, leave our bodies alone. Stop treating us as broken. We have defined disability as a matter of social justice. Disability residing not in paralysis, but in stairs without an accompanying ramp. Not in blindness, but in the lack of braille and audio-recorded books. Disability itself doesn't live solely in depression or anxiety, but rather in a whole host of stereotypes and damaging material realities. Not in dyslexia, but in teaching methods unwilling to flex. Not in lupus or multiple sclerosis, but in the belief that certain bodily conditions are a fate worse than death. In this redefinition, the disability rights movement joins many other social change movements ranging from black civil rights to the women's movement to queer liberation in the ongoing work of locating the problems of social injustice not in our bodies but in the world.
0: That's really powerful. I mean what he says about yeah, social justice not residing in bodies but in the world and I think we've seen also that the pandemic has, you know, further exacerbated these social injustices and access to very basic rights and services.
2: I think, you know, the pandemic has had a a huge effect on that uh, because uh, it has made things extremely difficult for this child and for the person with disability, uh, mainly because, uh, you know, all systems shut down. Yeah. So, for example, the medical systems that shut down. So people requiring medication or any kind of intervention, not being able to get it. And that has caused a setback a lot. The education system, for example, um, when a system, you know, keeps you at its fringes in any case at the time when there was the pandemic was not there now with the pandemic we are finding that that it's not that inclusion is on two steps backwards because this child will be the last to be thought of when the education system for example online suddenly everybody is everybody's talking about online education but nobody is really seeing that if a child does need a little bit of extra support or a different kind of support yeah how Will I organize my online teaching to accommodate for that? With that we are not at we've not reached that stage because we've been so, I'd say, as a nation and perhaps as a world, panic stricken, you know, and we've been kind of scrambling to find ways to reach out, to do, you know, to to educate our kids, to get back the education cycle going, uh, but for the. This child who may need, for example, a lesson in sign language, now that may not be available for her online. So, and for the school that was not already ready, now to be ready is far more difficult. So, what in effect, what I'm trying to say here is that the pandemic has struck us at a time when we ourselves were not ready for this child, and therefore it has taken us many steps backward.
1: The disability rights movement has for decades been advocating for children with disabilities to have access to learning and education, and for public spaces, systems, and institutions to be inclusive. In many ways, the pandemic has now potentially set this back as being um, you know, relegated to home through long lockdowns, and the economic crisis that has climbed on the back of this pandemic has meant multiple complex repercussions for these kids.
0: Absolutely. And I was reading a report uh, recently published by the National Center for Promotion of Employment of Disabled People, which is titled Lockdown and Left Behind. Um, And one of the child respondents in it describes the fallouts like this. I'm a child with a disability and my education has suffered a great deal because of this lockdown as I'm unable to go to school. I'm now dependent on my parents for my lessons. I have other siblings at home as well, and their studies are prioritized over mine as they do not have a disability.
1: You know, I have to say this, that whenever I hear such narratives, it reminds me just how important it is to listen to children. And have them be actively engaged on such conversations, because at the end of the day, they have unique knowledge of their own life experiences, which really enriches how we as society can then begin to move towards systems that are indeed more inclusive.
0: Absolutely. And in fact, another study I came across also shows how our current systems need some serious rethinking, you know, and which could be augmented if it included the actual experience of children. According to the study conducted by a community-based organization, Swabhiman, and it was with 3,627 respondents, um, it found that 43% of children with disabilities are planning to drop out of studies due to difficulties faced by them in online education. And then teachers also reported that 64% of students don't have access to smartphones or computers at home. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, for many families, like you mentioned, the struggle at this moment is just to survive. This is the time when families are just scrambling, at least the families I work
2: with. The majority are scrambling for the basics, just for food. Food security is one of our biggest issues at this time. So at a point like this, it becomes very difficult to focus on the requirements of a child. Uh, So these are the ways in which children, uh, particularly those requiring medication, requiring that accommodation, you know, um, a little bit of change here, a little bit of change there, a different kind of language, a different way of teaching. That's where people are really, children will be suffering and are suffering.
1: This falls right along the lines of what was being reported by multiple civil society networks and organizations as the humanitarian crisis triggered by the pandemic has unfolded in India. Uh, One survey that I remember quoted that potentially 8 in 10 daily wage workers in urban areas had lost their jobs due to the lockdowns, and uh, multiple surveys shared the immense experience of crisis where a majority of the workers surveyed shared having barely any savings of food to last them through the week with no thought really about the many many months ahead
2: now in a situation like this where food itself is so scarce and there is hardly any um, uh, then at this point of time to have you know a food that is nutritious for the child and that the child can eat, or maybe the child requires to eat at least thrice, you know, rather than twice in a day, those things become very difficult. As it is, there is a very strong linkage between disability and malnutrition. Um, many of our kids cannot go and get the food for themselves. So They wait to have somebody assist them. For example, a young child with vision impairment may not know, may not be able to get to the food like other children will go to the kitchen or open a box and take that food. But this child may may not be able to do that. So these become little, little, little barriers that when you already have a shortage of food, Uh, for example, we've had situations where, you know, in Delhi, uh, the, uh, the government was giving out food, two meals a day, uh, in schools, and many of our families are single parents—a single mother with two chi- children with disabilities. Now she could not reach that school. To get there, and then if you reach there, then can you say at that point of time, I need two more plates because I have two kids sitting at home who need that food? So these were the. This is not one one instance. There are many many instances like this. What I am trying to say here is that there needed to have been a little more thinking. Although us giving food, our government giving food, uh, two hot meals in the um, through the government uh, schools was a wonderful thing, saved many people from starvation. But when you have specific interest groups, like for example this child, yeah, then it, you need to think a little bit more as to how uh, access can happen. Therefore, what I'm trying to say is that access was very, very, and continues to be very, very difficult to just get the basics going for this child.
1: What she describes clearly illustrates the multiple structural and systemic barriers at play here. So even when food might be provided by the government, does the family of a child with disabilities have this information? Do they know where to go? Is there someone to care for the child while the parent or the caregiver is standing in lines for food for children who cannot physically be there? These are all very real, immediate access issues that have to be addressed when we're talking about specific groups and their needs. Yes,
0: and that's just one lens. I mean, Radhika's organization, Aastha, conducted two consultations with other groups and organizations from the beginning of the lockdown in April till now. And what they found was that access to healthcare facilities, medicines, social security, and lack of information were the other key issues that families with disabilities were facing. Um, And the report also observed persons with psychosocial disability, persons who require medication, persons who are connected with counselors on a regular basis, are impacted by the lockdown across the country. But what they've also done is document what has been working well based on their ground-level experience. And they found that community-based systems and local support has had a big role to play in responding to the needs of children. Where you will see organizations
2: working that have been able to bring families together or young people with disabilities together or where people with disabilities have groups, what we call DPOs, disabled people's organizations, or people just getting together, you will find that there is a lot of uh, support and support structures are there. But this is few and far between. Yeah. But uh, for example, in my own organization, we've had instances of a parent uh, supporting other parents you know, getting the medication for three, four kids and seeing that. But that happened because the parents over a period of years were constantly meeting in meetings and things like that. And they had got to know each other and form small informal support groups. But the large majority of children and people with disabilities don't have these structures and support structures. Because we work very intensively with families and children in where we work. Uh, We are very aware of, uh, you know, needs uh, that are there. And we were able to immediately reach out uh, through the, you know, phone and WhatsApp and all these uh, various methods. But what I think one of the big questions that did come up was, where are the other children? Okay, we work with 250 families, but that's not enough. It's oh, there's a whole city out here, and how do we reach out to more children and more families whom we know will be in distress? And that's when we started looking for lists. And as, as I shared with you, we reached out to the hunger committee uh, that Delhi had set up, we reached out to the Delhi Commission for Protection of Child Rights. We got support and permission to reach out to the Anganwadis, and the Anganwadi workers were able to connect us with many, many young children, older children, even people with disabilities in their communities. So that gives us an idea that actually our frontline workers, people who work very closely in communities, do know the community very well, have be, these can become spaces where actually the community, community, a sense of community is also built. So what we're going to try and do is now start connecting families also.
0: What stands out is what an important role these connections play and just how important community-based systems and local networks are. And I think the pandemic re-emphasizes that in many ways, because when physical movement is curtailed, your community automatically is those who are closest and nearest to you. And you need the support because vulnerability has also increased. And it just makes care and community that much more important. Um, And Radhika also spoke of ways in which children are being supported in this time so that they are connected to their peers.
2: The other way is reaching out to children and seeing that they are part of larger groups of children. That's one of the strategies that we use a lot, is we don't work in isolation with the child with disabilities. Very early on in our work, we realized that that was just isolating that child even more. So we bring in all the other children and we we uh, do a lot of work with all children, including children with disabilities together. And I think we are going to need to do a lot of that in uh, so that as they grow up, they grow up together. And uh, they grow up with support structures around them. We need to build those structures now very much, uh, even for children who are going to schools. And one of the things I've found has been very useful is just using the phone. We've been able to reach out to all these families just through the phone. And we've got connected and we won't stop there. In a small way, what we are doing is we are creating these craft packets You know, we are creating small packages with lots of different craft materials that children can do together and include this child also. So in and around the family, there are always brothers, sisters, uh, you know, children from the next door house. And we are encouraging them to use these, create small things uh, along with this child. Because for us, she is at the epicenter of it all. So with her at the center, which is normally not the case, other children can gather and make some of these things. We understand that many of our kids, and I'm not only talking about kids with disabilities, need to have lots of things to do at this point. It is not just this online thing. So as the open up is happening, we are making every effort to get to children and to to support them with activities that they can do in small groups also. So making a craft project. So the older child can also participate, the younger child can also participate, and this child can also participate.
1: Pandemic or not, children just need to be able to play, laugh and just be children, uh, especially when the option of going to school or therapy or accessing other services is just not there. And the onus of caring for all these developmental needs of a child has now shifted indoors to the home.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, they're in more pressure on parents um, and caregivers. So where a child could access a teacher or a therapist before, now these same care responsibilities have fallen to them entirely. And Radhika mentioned how they are working with families to support them at this time.
2: Now, it's a question of us also sharing with the family, which we should have actually done earlier also, which we're used to, but not to the extent that we're doing today. Yeah. So, uh, the way we can support the parent is maybe also giving them, what we're doing is making little videos, talking to the family. So, when you see something visually, it is much easier to do it. Yeah? Uh, so, if you can package and provide that uh, support, for example, therapy. Now, we do a lot of therapy with children. And at this point, it's not possible. But for we, one thing is, we always teach the family because they are the ones who will actually do it. But now, uh, we are making small videos and we can share with the family and say, Yahan aise I think very, very important that something is taught us. Parents, are, you know, they have a lot of knowledge. We sometimes in all our teaching and in our education system, we disempower the parent. It's only the teacher who can tell you, no. I ask the parent, how. what are the stories that you know? So how many actually people ask a parent, talk to your child, give your child the stories that you know from your own village and from your childhood. And uh, a whole fund of knowledge is there. So we have to tap into knowledge that people have rather than always thinking that we are the ones with the knowledge that has to be given. I don't believe in that. And and more so today, I believe less in that. Uh, yeah. And I've always seen families come up with the most fantastic things. But... Uh, I'm not going to paint a rosy picture because I don't think that enough of this has happened.
1: I feel like we keep circling back to this, but it bears repetition because like she's saying, it's only possible to address the multiple needs of a child when the basics are taken care of. And that's what she means when she says economic and social contexts have to be taken into account. Exactly. And that's where social
0: protection schemes also come in. It's that critical safety net that families need to be able to ensure that they have access to food rations or medical facilities, pension schemes, and disability certificates. And, and I think also it's because when families are safer, so are children. Um, yet, as she mentions in a recent survey that Asta conducted, not even half the families surveyed had access to these protection schemes.
2: Just now we've done a detailed study of uh, these 1,600 people. So it's like a random sample that we got. Mm-hmm. People that we reached out to all through the city of Delhi, the NCR. And uh, we asked each family whether they had ration cars, they had the disability certificate and pension. And the majority, so only about, say, 40% had disability certificates. Even fewer had pension, this social protection support that is supposed to be coming to them. And very few actually had ration cards, for example. That's another thing. Uh, I think uh, we have not really looked at the disability sector, but we really need to. Uh, This pandemic has drawn our attention to the fact that we need to look and see how many people have ration cards that uh, they, they can use actually to get food. In our sample, because it's largely a migratory sample, it's people who migrated from different parts of the country to Delhi. It's the the data says that it's very very few, fifteen percent actually had ration cards. So the large number of people, families, and children, and because we reach out to children, a large part of the sample is is families of children with disabilities and there are also adults but the majority is children with disabilities that access is very poor. therefore we have to think that and uh, that if access to this basic social protection is not there then for the very young child yeah so 0 to 6 if you think this is a time when families are just coming to terms with the fact that the child is having a difficulty or is slightly different and they're trying to understand. So they're not going in for entitlements and things. They're not getting there at all. So at this point again, then, there is really nothing that targets this child. So we have to think very carefully because uh, this is your data that tells you that, um, and the NSS gives us a very, very clear data set that hardly anybody is getting support from the government. Very few people have disability certificates.
1: You know, this points to the largest structural issues too of who gets left out of planning and policies and remains invisible. And children feature right up there. Um, Even before the pandemic, this was evident in successive budget allocations to the Ministry of Women and Child Development. And the crisis has made the gaps of investment and implementation glaringly visible.
0: Right, and yet it's not as if it isn't possible or that states haven't been able to respond. I mean, there's also evidence of what's working. I mean, take Kerala, for instance. Right from March, when India went into lockdown, the government was delivering meals to homes of children registered under the midday meal scheme. Um, And Radhika also gave examples from other states and their responses you know, the giving of information and the running
2: of helplines. And uh, helplines have been a very useful thing. In uh, Tamil Nadu, for example, we, we, our colleagues from Tamil Nadu told us that uh, the helpline there worked very well. Uh, the Disability Commissioner's Office uh, was very, very proactive. And in the helpline, they also included, uh, you know, sign language So reaching out through sign language and they got about 7,000 calls in a matter of 15 days or something like that. So they were able to reach out.
0: She added that what this time has also brought up is the number of young people and volunteers who are working with civil society organizations to ensure that the most vulnerable are reached.
1: And you know, it's again something that we saw at the time that migrant workers were walking back home that there were also people coming out of their homes to cook, feed and support each other. And in some ways, that is a silver lining in this crisis. Yeah, I think we, you know, I have to add that
0: often when one is working alongside children, the, the children themselves are the silver lining. I mean, they embody hope. And we're living through these difficult times when so much doesn't seem right. But maybe in some ways, the clarity that the experience of this pandemic brings is that we need to do things differently and that we need to raise our game and to do much better by our children. And I'm reminded of one of Nelson Mandela's quotes where he said, there can be no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. It rings as true today as when it was written. I want to leave you now with something Radhika shared about how she envisions a city that cares for and is a safe space for the most vulnerable, for children.
2: We are today in a world where increasingly we are becoming narrower and narrower in our acceptance of diversity all over the world. And I think that we need to really break those barriers. And I'd like to be in a city or imagine a city where, you know, all children and people can, you know, access any space irrespective of who they are. What kind of abilities they are supposed to have, and in order to do that, though, you need to design things differently. And I think that's where I mean, I'd really like a, a, a city or a world where things are designed in a way because inclusion will not happen or equality will not happen. We'll have to start thinking of much more universally how you can design spaces, services, so that all kinds of people can access those spaces and services. Mm. And where there's a lot of, uh, you know, child-friendly, I know it's a term that's used very often, but um, a city that is friendly to its children is very, very important and to all children. So including children with disabilities, Mm. which again would mean that you know, all the parks are open. That we have uh, spaces where kids can go to and play, actually, and uh, that that are accessible. And all services are open. And if all children are going to the Anganwadi, this child, so it's there. And there's no questions. It's not like a battle to get to these places. So less battle <laughs> and more inclusion. <laughs>
0: To know more about Aastha's research and support the work they're doing with children with disabilities, visit asthaindia.in. You can reach out to us also on our website at www.thecuriositycollective.org. In our bonus episode, we chat with Kavita Krishnamurti, founder of Kidikili in Chennai, who's been working to build inclusive play spaces for children with disabilities. Don't forget to listen in on Anchor, Google, or wherever you listen to a podcast. This episode was made with the support of Srinidhi Raghavan and was produced by the Bangalore Recording Company.